Well, here it is, episode number 33 of The Wheelhouse. And, Jerry, this is uh, only our second ever recorded from inside a visiting radio booth as we are enjoying the friendly confines of the Oakland Coliseum. Welcome to the Coliseum, Jerry. Are they really that friendly? <laughs> they <laughs> are confining. <laughs> they very much are. And it's funny, right as we started the podcast, I feel like the deafening music was just recently turned down. So this is a good timing. Thank you for bringing your presence here. We've been struggling a little bit over the last, uh, let's call it, 30 minutes. <laughs> There's a, we can say we've been struggling <laughs> over the last 30 days. <laughs> but uh, you know, obviously getting here to Oakland, these are, it, it, today starts nothing but important series from here out. And, and it starts with Oakland, and, and we have to find a way to get out of our own way. I mean, this road trip has been kind of interesting, right? It's a, a lengthy three-city road trip. You go into Arizona, you take two games out of three against a first-place ball club in the Diamondbacks, a day off, and then a really disappointing 36 hours of games, at least, in San Diego, losing both of those to a pair of rookie starting pitchers. How do you assess the first five games of this trip? Well, like you said, in Arizona, which was roughly a culmination of what we had done throughout August, is is we played – well, uh, we came up on the positive side twice. We won small. Uh, we tend to lose big, like we did yesterday. But the the Diamondbacks, the Dodgers, the Astros, the A's, the, our schedule during the month of August has certainly been a challenge, and and we didn't meet it. You know, I think somebody told me when we won Saturday night's game in Arizona, which I thought was a fantastic win, uh, one of the better wins of the second half for us. That that would be that would get our momentum. That would allow us to get the the wheels spinning. And someone told me that that was only the the second time in the second half that we had beat the same team on consecutive days, which I found a shocking revelation. I, and I went back and started counting in my head, and I believe outside of the the series sweep in Houston that we did, we had had a difficult time winning back to back. And it stands up because we haven't won very many series. So it's just a we've not played well for a, for a length of time here. And fortunately, there's enough season left to, to, that we're that we do have time to get ourselves back on the track. But we have we have to allow it to start tonight because we're playing a team we have to beat. As you kind of psychoanalyze, as you put the Mariners on the shrink's couch, when you look at that stat you just dropped on back to back wins against the same team, does that? Means something to you? I mean, how do you look at that in terms of this ball club? I think it's it's shocking. It's uh, particularly shocking because of how we started the year, and during the first half, there, there was never a time in a game, and we talked about it so many times on this podcast, and and we talk about it frequently throughout the first three months of the season. There was never a time where we thought we were out of a game. Our players always had that confidence that we were going to come back if we kept it close to the seventh inning. We were going to find a way to win that game. We had Eddie, and, and especially after we got Colome down there, and everybody felt that confidence that, that ah, keep it close and we'll get it to Eddie and everything's going to be good. I, we still have the same elements. We still have the same players, and, and in some ways we've even added to it with guys like Denard Spann, the return of Robinson Cano, and, and some general breakouts. And we have players that are having good years. But that sensation is no longer as dominant as it was in the first three three months of the year where we felt like we were going to win the game. And and I wonder where it went. I'd like to get on the, the psych couch and figure <laughs> out how we – Welcome uh, to the wheelhouse. That's right, how we, how we get back to that mentality. And I don't know which comes first is the win or the, the mentality, but my sense is that if we win a couple of games in an environment like I'm sure we're going to experience this weekend – that generally takes care of creating some momentum. 
Well, we've got a lot to talk about on this episode of The Wheelhouse. Remember, you can always subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, feel free to shoot either Jerry or myself a question. You can fire those away at thewheelhouse@mariners.com. You know, Jerry, you mentioned the game Saturday night in Arizona. The Denard Span home run was one of the just tremendous moments of the season. And, of course, following that was save number 50. What did you think of Scott's haircut? Uh, I love it, personally, because it gives me something to laugh at every day <laughs> when it's been harder and harder to find things to laugh at. But, you know, I, I think really, Scott, first of all, I'm, I'm proud of him for holding up on it because it couldn't have been easy sitting in the barber's chair allowing that to happen. But uh, it's he has he's a little sheepish about it, you know. I, he's I, very sheepish about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I mean, if I were him, frankly, I'd be wearing a hat more often than not. But I, I think back, I had some crazy haircuts in college, and uh, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that that I've come close to what he's sporting right now <laughs> at at, a, at different points in my life, but. Uh, you know, Scott's a pretty conservative guy. They don't do a lot of uh, racer stripes and lightning bolts in Coon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's been fun, and it's given us a reason to get a little chuckle out of an otherwise tough time. You know, when we're up in the booths and we're talking to especially National League broadcasters who haven't seen the Mariners for the first time or even teams of the American League, you know, guys will ask opposing broadcasters and writers about the managers and what are these guys like. And kind of one of my more consistent responses about Scott is I feel like he has a really good vibe on his guys, and I feel like his guys really uh, feed well off of Scott and that he is, of course, we've talked about his communication skills, but this is kind of the most elaborate way to demonstrate how he really is, at least from the outside looking in, and I do consider us on the outside because you know, we're down there for a few hours a day, but we don't know. We're not really in there, of course, when the door is closed. So my feeling of it is that I mean, he really has this really good rapport with his players, which I'm not sure you can say that about every manager. No, and I dare say not very many of them would have ponied up to, right. <laughs> to, to do what Scott did. And, and I think it was fun because Scott, if I had, truly, if I had a, a dollar for every time Scott wanted to bet me on something, I, I would be a rich man. Really? And, and it, it is his nature to say, oh, I'll bet you that's not right. <laughs> but, you know, or, you know, I'll bet a paycheck on X. And, and okay, oh, let's do that. And, you know, in this case, I think, you know, Scott did answer and, and uh, I guess – paid up where where it was due and mostly i think out of respect for edwin diaz along the way i'm sure he would have liked to try to wiggle out but eddie was having such a phenomenal year and i think maybe more than any of our other players edwin has like a, like almost a childlike enthusiasm about the game he just loves it and i i think for him to go out there and and maintain that type of the enthusiasm and excitement for the for the job every night it was it was fueled by Scott being willing to to go along and and have a fun play a fun game with him. So I, I think that the two people couldn't be any more polar opposite. You know, Scott is generally down the middle and conservative in, in how he approaches it, and Eddie is lightning bolts and and fun haircuts and hundred mile an hour heaters. What would we uh, have to get you to do? What would have to happen for you to get that haircut, Jerry? I mean, if you ask nice, I'd probably give it a shot. Oh, really? <laughs> no, okay. No, I think, uh, you know, if if somehow we could pull the, the, the this series or the month of September out of thin air and get back on track, I'd be glad to shave whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you heard it here on the wheelhouse. Uh, let, let's talk about this series, Jerry, because this it doesn't just feel like it. It is a massively pivotal four-game series against the team of the Mariners once had a lead on now they're trying to get that lead back when you are anticipating these four games what are you hoping to see 
Well, ordinarily you think one game at a time, especially at this juncture of the season. But we've put ourselves in a situation, particularly even in the last 48 hours, uh, we put ourselves in a situation where you come into this series and it's hard to imagine a successful run through the month of September. Minimally, I think we have to split this series. I don't think we can lose any more ground straight up to, to Oakland and, and truly expect that we're going to catch up in 25 games. That's, that's a little heavy. Do you, if you're Scott Service, do you, and maybe it's unfair to ask you this question, Jerry, but I know you, you and Scott talk all the time. Do you, you manage these four games differently? I don't, I don't necessarily think you manage them differently, although with the 1st of September on Saturday and expanding rosters, you can manage your pitching differently because now you're not worried about burning through a bullpen, which ordinarily when you're starting a four-game series, you're loath to get into your bullpen too early because you're worried about what that will do over the course of a four-day, four-game series. He can kind of open it up over these next two days knowing that we're going to get reinforcements, including a starter, over the weekend. The offense has obviously struggled, especially dating back to the Sunday game against Grinke, which that explains part of it that day in particular. Uh, is this something that you see as needing a more of a major overhaul quickly, or this has just been a funk for the Mariners? It, it's been a funk, but it hasn't been since Sunday. It's just been a funk. And, you know, we, we've gone from one of the, the five best offenses in the league for the first three months of the season to one of the five – not best mm -hmm. offenses, sure. which is to say we've been near the bottom. And, and we've, we've filtered to, I think, 12th in the league in runs scored on the season, which tells you how much of a struggle it's been for us over the last month and a half, two months, in putting together hits and, and, and especially getting that big hit, which is what we've just not been able to do. We, we saw it on Sunday against Zach down in Arizona. We saw it in the first two games in Phoenix. We, we, we were fortunate enough to score enough to win those games. But we've just not done a lot of consistent run production over the course of the second half of the season. There is no quick fix because we've watched this happen to us over time. Uh, it was a little ominous trying to figure out how we were going to get back on track without Nelly in there. And I thought you saw something different, the fact that Scott ran Nelly out to right field on more than one occasion against National League opponents breathes to how important these games are for us because we just couldn't imagine scoring runs without Nelson in there right now. I think when a lot of people think about the A's this year, an obvious question is how, right? How has this happened? How have they played uh, almost 750 ball for the span of like 22 series, right? I mean, they've lost like two series in that span of maybe 21 series. Uh, you know, I'm curious your thought just a little bit on the opposing side, Jerry. When when I look at Matt Chapman both in person and on pa paper, I think if the A's make the playoffs, I mean, Chapman's not going to win the MVP, but he could get MVP votes what he's been doing this year. You can make the case he's certainly the best defender at his position. He might be the best defender in the game, and he's putting together a really good offensive season. I mean, I'm sure you saw this guy when he was an amateur. What he's blossomed into has been incredible. Yeah, I actually saw him quite a bit as an amateur, and, and to the point, he actually played on a summer team with Scott's son, Tyler. Did and he really? So, so we've known Matt for quite some time uh, from at least – watching him play and having spent some time in Southern California, Matt went to high school and to college, not very far from where I was living. So have known of him and watched him since he was in high school. I think he is having a season that's going to generate MVP votes. And, and I don't think he's the only one on this A's team who is kind of broken out, so to speak. This is a very talented offensive group. And we knew that coming into the season, 
with Matt Chapman. I think you've got veteran presence with guys like Chris Davis and Jed Lowry and, and other guys who have, I think, Stephen Piscotty's found a new life since right. moving from St. Louis to, to Oakland at a, at a tough time in his life. And, and, and I think you've seen some, some more consistency out of guys like Marcus Simeon and could not have imagined that their starting rotation was going to produce the way it has, particularly over the second half of this season. But the bullpen is very legit and on – I mean, it is a, among the best in the league. And when they get in that game, when you've got guys like Trinan and Familia and, and Trevino, who until this year nobody really had a sense for how good Trevino truly was, even their middle relievers are, are at times dynamic and they're big arms. And I've said before – just when you think, and I said this before this year started, super talented position player club with a really good bullpen, just when you think Oakland is, is in the rebuild phase, they'll do something that shocks you. I've been in this division with them for too long. I think it's one of the smartest front offices in baseball, and they, and they just find ways to, to remain competitive, and, and they've done it again. I guess it goes without saying with that bullpen the importance of striking and striking early in these four games. You, you can't put enough of an emphasis on it. Well, I mean, it, what we've seen here lately is that they have faltered from time to time uh, in that middle what? sixth, seventh inning. They, it has happened. It's happened? It has. And, you know, so I don't want to put, the, the, like, the <laughs> an ominous gloom over the, the death the, nail. Yeah, but we, we we do. We have to start producing early in the game, and, and, and we've got to manufacture runs. We've, we have gotten a number of runners on. We've just stranded a ton of runners over the course of time, and – and for a team like ours who just doesn't walk very much, you know, we, we don't typically strike out a ton, uh, but we don't walk very much. You have to start getting that big hit, stringing it together, or doing the selfless thing, finding a way to hit the ground ball to the right side or get that fly ball to, that deep enough into the outfield to score the run. It would be nice to have some crooked numbers up there. We, we're, we're not bad at scoring the, the single run. We've got to get better at scoring the two and the three. The rotation has struggled in the month of August, but looks like some good news will be seeing James Paxton here in Oakland. Yeah, and hopefully Marco Gonzalez shortly thereafter. But we do anticipate James starting this weekend, and uh, you know he's on target, looks good, feels good, and he will come with some some bullpen expansion once we get to Saturday, and we'll, we'll call up four or five relievers, and and that'll be a positive. And, and I do think that allows Scott to manage the game in a different way and maybe not rely on those starters to get into the sixth and seventh inning as much as we've had to in August. We're not shorthanded, and now we, we've got the ability with an expanded roster that for us is going to be mostly bullpen guys. The uh, August waiver deadline is very quickly approaching. Is it 9 Pacific on Friday night? Is that the time? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's, it's 5 o'clock tomorrow uh, Eastern. Okay. Okay. Uh, we know that obviously you cannot divulge uh, much, but I have to imagine that this is is this as as busy of a time as the July deadline? Is it how is it different? Uh, it's been really quiet for us. We haven't been in a particularly good claiming position uh, because we were the team, we were the let's call it the the American League club that by and large was the last of the contenders. You could consider Tampa Bay a contender, but they've been in rebuild mode for months now. And they have done a phenomenal job at putting talent out on the field, young talent that's fun to watch, and they're making up ground. They're crawling up our back. I know that. Yeah, they really are. But for most of this August period, we have been that the last of the contenders, meaning that by and large anyone in that being, being run through trade waivers on a National League club, we were going to have no chance at. And on the American League side, virtually anyone who was, who was 
accessible enough was probably going to be claimed by the teams in front of us. And then we had to determine whether it was important enough for us to block players from the teams ahead of us. And I, and I think I told stories on, on an earlier episode about blocking players. It's a pretty dangerous game. Will that ever go out of style, blocking players? Is it out of style because of what you just said? Oh, it's, it's very out of style. I don't think anybody does it anymore. Uh, and, you know, former co-worker of mine, the late Kevin Towers, who I love, fun guy to work with, uh, the Padres once got stuck with Randy Myers, if you'll recall that episode. Uh, you know, they try, they were all they were trying to do was block him from the Braves, and they got they got rewarded uh, with Randy Myers and his contract for the next couple of years. <laughs> that made it very hard to navigate for a small market team, and you just can't allow that to happen to you. And you know, we've been in a position where we've won a handful of claims. We just haven't been able to work out deals, or they weren't players that those teams were interested in moving on. Shifting to the minor league side of things, Jerry, uh, the minor league seasons are, are wrapping up and awards are being named now for minor league players around the country. Julio Rodriguez taking home the uh, Dominican Summer League MVP. Tell us, we've talked a little bit about uh, Julio, but tell us more. Well, we've had actually a number of individual players have big years this year. Julio's one of them. Um, you know, Julio, along with, I uh, say, Evan White, Kyle Lewis, you know, now Logan Gilbert, widely considered our, our top prospects. But uh, Julio doesn't show up on a lot of the big lists, the top 100s that you might see from Baseball America or the like, largely because he's in the DSL. He was our top international signee last year. He's playing at just 17 this year. It is a real bat with real power potential. He's an athlete. He's got the ability to stay in center field now. He's likely to grow into a corner as he ages into the system. He's, just a, he's a big physical 6'3", 195 now. At 17. At, at 17. Wow. And, and he's not going to be a small human once he starts, <laughs> once he really matures into that man strength. But it's, it's a, it's a five-tool guy with big, big offensive potential. Hey, Evan White's in Modesto, and it seems like you just mentioned his name. He, he's really starting to click a little bit. 11 home runs this year, five this month. I mean, his slash line, 375, 463, seven and a quarter. What is it that he has tapped into this month in particular? Do you know? Well, I mean, Evan moved his hands down. And, and Evan, throughout the year, was hitting for average, was getting on base. Power was, was not his highest trait. Excellent defender can really run there's so many things to like about Evan and then his hands his hand position moved down let's call it six eight inches in his in his setup his hands moved down and his swing plane moved up which is the 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 general way things work and once that happened he has a ton of bat speed he can put barrel to ball and he's he's an athlete with with above average strength you started seeing that bat bat speed start translating into extra base hits and over the fence power simply by dropping his hands in his in his setup and i i i'm really happy for him that he's finished on a strong note uh the modesto season they're still competing you know they're they're not having a great year but they are competing in a division that is incredibly winnable for a team that has a losing record but Evan will go on to the Arizona Fall League, so his his season will extend forward. And using what he has done in August as the ramp into what we hope is a productive fall, Evan's got a chance to be a really solid major league player in the not-too-distant future. And this month told us that that's probably getting closer than further away. Good news there. Kyle Lewis, is he finishing on a positive note to end the season? Kyle's had a nice two-week run. You know, a real struggle for him since we promoted him to Arkansas and uh, had, a, had a difficult time just finding his hits. 
I was down in Arkansas earlier in the month, and I got a chance to to be there on a night where he hit about a 450 foot homer to center field, and and it made you start wondering what what this will turn into as long as he's healthy. And and right now he is, and has been playing that way all year. He's got a smile on his face. I think he's enjoying what he's doing, and he's Kyle has been the least fortunate hitter in our system by our metrics. So his exit velocities, the 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 everything he's doing from launch angles to exit velocities suggests that the results should be better, and and they just haven't. So we're just going to maintain a, a a feeling of patience or or try to maintain patience in watching Kyle grow. It's been such a rough couple of years for him from an injury. Uh, standpoint that we just want to give him the room to move. And here in the last couple of weeks, we're starting to see some positive results. Now, Jerry, when we think about calling games in spring training, we, we see a lot of minor leaguers, right? We see a lot of the even mid to upper tier minor leaguers, not so much the, the low A guys, but still, we see a lot of guys over the years. Joey Curletta? Joey Curletta. Now, we never saw Joey. And I had to look up, I had to dig to find out where did this guy come from? Did, did I read this right? Pat Vendetti? Pat Vendetti. All right, so one-for-one one swap with the uh, ambidextrous pitcher. That's right. right. Uh, Texas League Player of the Year? Correct. Tell us about him. He's uh, enormous, it looks like, by the way. Yeah, D- Joey, actually a lot like Ryan Healy. Um, so Joey was a Phoenix Valley kid. He uh, went to high school in the Phoenix Valley. Was originally drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, traded to the Dodgers in the original Carlos Chuchruiz deal, uh, and then we acquired Joey as uh, in return for Pat Venditti. And, and I, th- I, I think that's the, the combination of events. So, you know, it's a, Joey joined us. He had a nice year, uh, if unspectacular, for us last year in Modesto. Showed big power, and we knew he had that. This year, the biggest step forward for Joey Curletta was his, his strike zone discipline. And he just he started swinging at strikes. His out-of-zone chase really improved. His ability to stay in the zone to hit really improved. As a result, the average has hovered right around 300 all year long. He was threatening to win the Texas League Triple Crown for a period of time, and his walk rate has soared. And and as a result of all of that, the strikeout rate came down. And, and all the other elements were there. He's just 24 years old. He's age-appropriate, and, and what he did was put himself back into the prospect mix with the year he's had, and we're glad he's here. And by the way, I... I did say he's ambidextrous, Vendetti. Uh, the headline of the newspaper article, I think, was amphibious, so I beg your pardon. <laughs> did you see that, by the way, when that came out, the so amphibious pitcher? I used, to, I used to have the amphibious. I had a teammate who would often reference you know, those who are ambidextrous as amphibious, and so many people <laughs> in baseball will use it as a as like a, a little slang. It really? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's amphibious. Oh, so maybe the guy, maybe the guy who wrote the headline actually knew something. I think that. it was actually on purpose because a lot of people in baseball call the the ambidextrous player amphibious. I just learned something. Hey, I, uh, I've got a great stump JD question for you. But before we get to that, I was looking through Jerry your career pitching appearances against the A's. And I was first. Let's of all, call them hot and cold. <laughs> <laughs> you you really faced the A's more as a National League pitcher, as it turned out, in interleague play than you did with the Indians. Uh, but you faced a guy who, uh, Blow and Gary and I were talking about this in the booth a little while earlier today. If you make a top ten list of greatest players of all time, I think by almost anyone's list, Ricky Henderson will never be in that top ten, and he should be in the top he's ten. A, he's had an awesome career. What was it like facing Ricky Henderson? Uh, Ricky would talk to you. 
No. Uh, oh, yeah. He would t- Actually, a couple of things. One, my very first Major League strikeout came in this ballpark uh, against against the Oakland A's in 1993, a, a third baseman by the name of Craig Paquette. It was uh, at, right in the middle of, of Jose Canseco and Mark <laughs> McGuire and Craig Paquette. No, uh, that was my first get. But Ricky Henderson, when you would face Ricky, he would audibly talk to you when you were on the mound. So, and I was, uh, I, I threw relatively hard, and I threw a lot of balls in on right-hand hitters. And, and uh, I had like a sink and a board on my fastball, and Ricky would take the pitch, and he would respond, that doesn't bother Ricky. That doesn't bother Ricky. That, and and he would talk to you the the whole at bat, and and I got a kick out of it, and I thought it was hilarious. And there were there were times where I didn't have a ton of success against Ricky, but I can tell you I don't remember an at bat that didn't last at least six pitches. He was unbelievable at lengthening an at bat. It's it was three two and every time, and it was it was like a a war trying to get him out. His ability to make contact, and he swung at strikes. You could throw a razor-sharp inner edge. He's not swinging. And, and as soon as he pops out of the way and tells the umpire that that doesn't bother him, it, it's a ball. And The other thing that, that always struck me was Ricky was the very first player in Major League that I came across in the Major Leagues. Which it's now a common event for every player. But Ricky was the one who started the tradition of, of tapping the catcher on the shin guard when he would come out to take his first at bat of the game and had tapped the, the catcher with the shin guard and say hello and, and start to hit. Well, I, I played with a catcher and actually played with him in two spots, both in New York and in Colorado. I played in the big leagues for a long time. His name was Brent Maine. And uh, Mainer was hilarious, a, a, a Southern Cal guy who had a, a, a really easygoing attitude. Played in the big leagues for, I'd say, 15-ish years. And, and uh, Brent said that his most entertaining moments in every year were the Ricky Henderson at bats because after a decade plus in the big leagues Ricky Henderson would come to the plate and he would tap Brent Maine on Brent Maine on the shin guard and every day he would call him a new name you know you know hey what's up Bill how you doing Bobby and and nobody and and Brent would just say doing pretty good Ricky I had no idea that his name was actually Brent and, and would say hello to him in a different way <laughs> but an awesome career and one of the great players of his generation think how much money Blow had this point I thought it was a great one how much money would Ricky Henderson make today uh, he was an absolute tool shed there was nothing he didn't have a great throwing arm but there anything else that you needed to do on a baseball field he was among the best at it including the power like if you made a mistake it, out away from Ricky or left the ball over the middle of the plate, he wasn't going to single through the six hole. I mean, he was going to hit the ball in the seats or knock it off a wall. And and uh, strong as they come, he was it was intimidating when he was on first base, forced you to do things in a quicker way. And there was only four or five players I ever came across that were like that were that intimidating uh, when just by running the bases, and he was one of them. He's incredible. Uh, he's here today. Of course, he's part of the staff uh, in one way or the other with the A's and. Uh he still is shredded, and the quads are still popping out of those home white pants of his. All right, you ready for Stump J.D.? This is a good one. You're going to like this one because sure. it's about pitchers. Oh, I like that. Okay. There are three pitchers in the history of this great game. Now, this is not in the same year, but in their career. There are three pitchers in their career who have won the Cy Young, the Silver Slugger, and the Gold Glove Award. Do you know those three pitchers? Cy Young, Silver Slugger. Gold Glove Award. Cy Young. Brett Saberhagen. 
No, it's a nice guess, though. No? Come on. Dwight Gooden. Have we fact-checked this, by the way? Uh, Dwight Gooden is not one. You're 0 for 2. Gary can edit out all the silence. It's not Greg Maddox. No. Cy Young, Silver Slugger. I, I, I have to, I'm going to have to see it. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit here thinking. Okay, I'll give you a it's hint. It's not fun I'll give listening you. to people think on a, <laughs> on a podcast. I'll give you a hint. One is active. One is active. Clayton Kershaw. No. I give up. Okay. The active one we just saw, Zach Greinke. That was, that's a. That's just dropping of the ball on my part. <laughs> I, I should have known that. He's one of my one of my most fascinating players of oh, all time. You know, I was I had him actually. I traded for him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were trying to drop as many Granky stories on that Sunday broadcast as we could because he right, is. Got a ton. Oh. All right, well, we could do a whole new podcast. Okay, the other two, by the way, Earl Hershiser, who had an unbelievable year in 1988. That's Fernando Valenzuela. Re I would have never gotten for I know. I should have known Oral Hershiser. Those are the three. Pretty elite list, huh? Yeah, that's that's crazy. What what did Brett Saberhagen? He never won the. You know, no, Slugger? Brett Saberhagen. If I can just be honest with you, uh, Jerry, uh, Brett Saberhagen like wasn't even close. Um, but a great pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wasn't even close. So, which is to say, he definitely won the Cy Young, and he won multiple Gold Gloves. Um, let's see. Brett Saberhagen won. Uh, two size, and he won. Believe it or not, Jerry, he won a gold glove. Ah, so gold yeah, glove. Some, that, you know, I, I embellished. It wasn't like he wasn't close. He won two Cyangs on gold gloves. It's a pretty great career. He just <laughs> never, he just never got the silver slugger part of it. That's all. Al, that's the problem. Um, I mean, he spent some time in the National League, four years. I played with him there. I mean, Where you know, if four if years isn't enough to win a silver slugger, you're doing something wrong. Okay? If you want real trivia, there there was, and this one, uh, Brett Saber. What are you saying about my trivia? Is that you dig into the couch cushions? And you're, trying to, <laughs> you're pulling this. You're pulling lint out of the couch cushion. But it's great lint. It isn't is. It? You're just, but th this one, I have to say, it should have been a little more gettable. Than I, I thought you know it. you're you know you are a pitcher, Jerry. Yeah. I thought you'd be all over this. But See, it, here's the difference, though, is that when Gary and I have these types of conversations. Like, this, it takes like a week for us to finish yeah. them. You get like a minute. We're still working on one. I think we're three weeks into one. <laughs> yeah, You're still yeah. guessing. I on. still randomly yeah. text them <laughs> names like in the middle of the night, and I just get nope. <laughs> and there is a level of intimidation when you're wearing a headset. Thank you. No, I think it's just it's, dead it's, silent. It's mostly me. It's mostly me, but it's okay. So Brett Saberhagen and I went to play with the Mets in the spring of 1995. I was traded to the Mets in in the winter of '94. Got over to New York. Two things stood out to me, and I, and I learned something that day that, I, that it, I've always remembered. Sports Illustrated was doing a, an, an article on the best tools in the game, the best the, whatever it was, fastball, curveball, slider, command. And, and uh, one of the writers from Sports Illustrated asked me the question. I'm sitting down in, in my locker, first couple of days of spring training. Jerry, who's got the best command in the National League? And, I, and I'm just coming over from the American League, and you know, and this is before the the, the games were on every single night. And I said, uh, Bob Tewksbury, Greg Maddox, you know. And now I'm saying this, and Brett Saberhagen's in a locker next to me. And he turned around and he looked at me, and he goes, "Whoa, whoa, dude, 
what about me? <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and I and I'd watched Saves pitch for a lot of years and and really admired the, like the the ability. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, you realize last he said you realize last year I I I, I won more games than I than players I walked, and I and. That, and I thought, huh, how many times has that happened in baseball history? And he said, ah, I didn't quite get there. But it's a, he had that year in 1994, the strike short in 1994 season, I believe Brett Saberhagen had 14 wins or something like that. Oh, my and gosh. Check it out. He had, Jerry, he had 14 wins. He walked 13 batters yeah. in 177 innings. Which made him the first of his kind since dating back to, like, Christy Mathewson when, when – they were winning 30 games a year and throwing nothing but strikes. And, and I thought that was a fascinating total and a, and, a, and a neat little trivia question. And it embarrassed me that I'm sitting there and I'm being asked a question on command. That's terrific. And this guy just did something that, that only two other people who had ever lived had done. I mean, he struck out 11 batters for every walk. <laughs> Pretty insane. <laughs> That's right? amazing. Yeah. That's a shame that year was cut short. And then can I throw this in there? The yeah. next, the the next little tidbit he threw out when the when the Sports Illustrated writer then said, "Well, Saves, if if that's the case, who's the toughest hitter in the league to strike out, you know, and uh, or to get out?" And he said, "Oh, that's it's a no-brainer. It's John Cangelosi." <laughs> and I almost broke down laughing. <laughs> I said, "I said, why John Cangelosi?" He said, "It's the only guy I walk twice." <laughs> really? Yeah. Which ought to be true. He walked 13 batters. John Cangelosi twice. That's amazing. They throw those balls back, right? Those go into the Hall of Fame somehow. That's great. Well, at some point, I don't know when it will be topical again, and maybe it won't matter. I have got to know your Zach Ranky stories. Oh, I got good Zach stories. Zach is a fascinating. I, seems we were like talking it. the other day, sitting there watching the game in Phoenix. Fascinating player who is starting to really build up a, a Hall of Fame credential. If you look at Zach Ranky's career and, and what it's from wins above replacement to the quality of what he's done, it's, it's, it's Hall of Fame-ish. Well, Jerry's one of only three pitchers ever to win the Cy Young, the Silver Slugger, and the Gold Glove. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, that should speak for itself, right? Uh, well, this has been fun, Jerry. We know you got a lot going on uh, when this road trip is over on Sunday. It's back home. Really good homestand coming up. Nine-game homestand Monday against the Orioles, the first of three Mariners value games presented by BECU. That means view level and bleacher seats, 15 bucks. Main level, Terrace Club, only 30 Then after that, the Yankees come to down. That'll be a big series against the Bronx Bombers, a three-game weekend over the, over the weekend. And then, of course, the Padres come to town as well on Tuesday and Wednesday, the 11th and the 12th. Jerry, thanks, man. It's good having you up in the booth. I'm glad to be here.